Support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. Additional support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club, which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who has worked at Michelin Star Restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. The green onion doesn't get a lot of attention. It's often a last-minute addition used as a garnish because it's easy to slice a couple to throw on top of some brown or white food to give it a little bit of color. Today, we're going to retrieve it from the depths of indifference and feature it in a couple of starring roles the Chinese snack scallion pancakes, and as the basis of a dressing for a grilled chicken salad. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. call them green onions, scallions, spring onions, or something else entirely, they're all the same, right? I certainly thought so. Green onions were just really immature versions of regular onions. They were about the only kind of onions that resulted when I'd plant onion sets in the garden due to this short Alaskan growing season. When you go to the store or to the farmer's market and you buy green onions, they're almost inevitably Allium sepa, the common onion, Grown as an annual plant from a single onion set, harvested very young before the green parts of the leaves turn leathery, before the outside white parts of the leaves dry out, and when the flavor is mild, sweet, and just a bit peppery, instead of sulfurous and oniony. While this kind of green onion is the dominant form throughout most of Europe and America, there are several other varieties. And to my delight as a lazy gardener who likes to grow things that stick around year after year, the other varieties are self-spreading perennials. There's Allium fistulosum, also known as the Welsh onion or the Japanese bunching onion. Those happen to be the ones I planted in my garden a couple of years back and which look to have established themselves firmly enough now to start harvesting regularly. They don't develop large bulbs like the common onion. They spread by dividing and form clumps. They'll also cast their seeds around and they're quite easy to grow from seed. There's Allium chinens, another multiplier type native to China and widely enjoyed across Eastern Asia. And there's a hybrid of the common onion and the Japanese bunching onion called the Egyptian walking onion that forms its bulbs at the end of its leaves, becomes top-heavy, falls over onto a different patch of ground, and grows a new clump of onions there. Over the years, it walks its way across the garden. In contrast to the annual variety, which is, let's be honest, a lot of work for a single green onion, the perennials trade a bit of upfront patience for a whole lot of easy harvests in the future. All of these share a similar characteristic. They lack the sharp, aggressive pungency of the mature common onion. They don't have that savory power and sweet undertone that gives their big brothers a foundational role in stews across the planet. They aren't a flavor bomb like garlic, and they don't have the complexity of the shallot or the grassy, herbaceous notes of chives. They're wonderful in a supporting role, though. They're found alongside garlic and ginger as the third ingredient of one of China's most common stir-fry bases. They make fantastic pickles. They're much more versatile raw than bulb onions. They've still got a fresh onion flavor, but they don't dominate. Then yes, sliced diagonally and scattered over brown and white food, they do make a terrific garnish. Uh, 
I have just set a kettle of water on to boil because today we are going to celebrate some scallions first off by making scallion pancakes, which are awesome. Very famous Chinese street food and snacky type food. They are one of the great celebrations of the green onion, the scallion, the spring onion, whatever you want to call it. And I just turned a kettle of water on because scallion pancakes, like many Chinese dough products, not all, uh, but certainly quite a few, are made with a hot water dough, a boiling water dough. Any of y'all who are pastry makers know that in Western style doughs, you are always constantly admonished to keep everything cold. However, in this particular dough, we're gonna make it with hot water. Now there is one really common pastry dough from the Western European tradition that is made with hot water. And that is a, an English dough called hot water pastry dough. That is a, kind of the traditional um, dough for pork pies. However, that tends to be a hot water mixed with a lot of fat and then flour. Whereas this particular dough now there's gonna be some fat involved, but it's in a little different way because not only is this a hot water, a boiling water dough that we're gonna use, this is also a laminated dough. It is not that different in structure than something like a croissant. Now it's made differently. So with a croissant, you first you make the oil or the, uh, the water and flour paste and you make that and roll it out into a big rectangle basically. And then you take another rectangle of butter that's beaten and softened it just enough, but still cold. And then you fold the, the sides over and you roll out the, the butter inside the envelope of dough. And then you fold it and you do this multiple times. And it's that, that layering, that lamination, which is why it's called laminated pastry, that you get, we wind up getting very thin layers first of the, the flour paste and then of the oil or the butter, uh, in this case, in the, in the case of the croissant, the butter, and that is what generates the flakiness of the dough. That's why it shatters into all the beautiful, beautiful layers that, that a well-made croissant makes. This is the same idea, only in this case, instead of folding it in the same way, there's kind of an interesting structure to how it's actually made, which we'll get to when we start making it, but it's the same deal. We're gonna, we're gonna be rolling this dough out and we're gonna brush some, instead of butter, we're gonna be brushing sesame oil on it, and then we'll roll it up, and that will create the laminated layers. Ultimately, when the, when the dough is pan-fried, the layers will separate a little bit, and it'll give it this really nice sort of light, flaky texture that is awesome. And then the outsides are nice and crispy. It is a fabulous dough. While I'm running my mouth, the water is getting close to the boil, so I need to add my flour to my bowl. This is a pretty basic recipe. It's not, this is not anything especially complicated. Four, five, six, seven, eight. So that is two cups of all-purpose flour. And in this case, this is one of those pastries where we just want to add, we want to add enough water. So I'm not gonna, I'm not bothering to weigh, but it's two cups of water to, or excuse me, two cups of flour to roughly one cup of water. And all of the more traditional recipes that I see say that you should let the water rest for a moment after it comes to a boil, presumably to let the temperature die, die back a little bit. So the thing about this hot water dough method it creates a very different texture than than a cold dough method like like we're probably more more used to so when you're actually working it one of the things that you'll notice is that there's virtually no spring back no there's no snap back in the dough like it becomes a lot easier to roll it out and not have it shrink back up so another thing about it is you can also roll it very 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 thin very easily and the third characteristic is the texture when it's cooked it is distinctly, it's got a chew to it, but it's, it's still tender. It, it, it doesn't have, it isn't tough. It's just a little bit chewy. Like there's a substantial feel to it. It doesn't have the characteristic of a flaky pastry where it shatters. 
and where you have like that distinct uh, feeling of, of the flakes coming apart in your mouth and, and a clean bite. This is much more of a chewy bite, which is appropriate for things like dumpling wrappers, where this gets used quite a bit, where you don't want it to, to sort of shatter. You want it to kind of adhere to whatever it's, it's uh, encapsulating. So this is a very common dough for things like dumpling batters um, and that sort of thing. But in this case, it is being used for the legendary scallion pancake. So two cups of flour, all purpose. And I've got, I poured my boiling water out into a one cup measure. I'm gonna add it a little bit at a time because as with all pastry, the biggest danger is it being a little too wet. We're treating the gluten in that will eventually result from the flour a little bit differently here. Gluten develops really quickly in the presence of warmer water, but this water is so hot that it actually, many of the proteins that would eventually under working get form the gluten actually get damaged by this very, very, very hot water uh, right off the bat. That accounts for the lack of springiness in the dough. And this is gonna take, I can tell, pretty much all of this water. It might even take a little bit extra. That's one cup of water since I just used measuring cups here and, and I only had a quarter, quarter cup measuring cup. So it's very likely that I have a little more flour than, than I sort of expect. So it's possible that I'll have to add a little extra water and I think I'm going to have to, which is very easy because I have my kettle here and I will just give it one little splash. Maybe a tablespoon. At this point, I'm going to add it really slowly. But anyway, so what happens is that the gluten develops very differently than it, than it would in a cold pie dough, which we're trying to, to develop the gluten in the kneading process and in the rolling process in a cold pie dough in a little bit different way. We want it to be sort of a little more organized and a little stretchier. We want the network to be really well contained and really distinct. There we go. Ooh, this is perfect. Yeah. The texture we want here is uh, we don't want it to be sticky, but we do want it to be unified, to be a nice solid dough. And now I'm going to knead it just for a little bit. It doesn't require a lot of kneading, just enough to kind of smooth it out. Right now it's a little bit lumpy. So we don't want the same sort of organized gluten network that we wind up getting in a cold dough where the gluten develops much, much slower and in a much more sort of co coherent fashion and which is much more extensive, which means that that's what makes the dough sort of snap back and have that springiness. This does not have any springiness at all. Right now I'm, I'm pulling it in various directions and it just stays. It doesn't, it doesn't at all try to snap back on itself the way that if you've ever worked with pie dough, you are very, very familiar with. So we don't need an extensive period for the gluten to relax like you have to have with a pie where you need to let the dough sit at a minimum for an hour and preferably longer to give the gluten time to relax and not be so vigorously wanting to spring back into its original form. This is very, very easy to handle. It's just a thick paste is all it is. It doesn't have that same sort of yielding quality. If you push a hole in it, if you push a dimple into it, it just stays a dimple. There is no resiliency to this dough. It is workable, it is malleable, and we can pretty much do whatever we want at this point. Now, I'm just giving it a good knead and we're about to a point where it's nice and kind of smooth. Most of the lumps have worked themselves out. And we are going to let this rest here on the countertop just for a few minutes, maybe a half hour or so. And the purpose of this rest is again, not to let the gluten relax because we don't have, it, it hasn't developed in that way. Uh, the purpose of this rest is just to let it hydrate and let everything, you know, let all the flour fully hydrate, except all of the water. And, uh, and then we'll have a very easy to work dough. So while we're waiting for this to happen, I'll set this aside under some plastic wrap. Man, so much plastic wrap gets used in the kitchen, you know? Kind of nuts. And I'm gonna prep my scallions. 
these are not the fabulous scallions from my garden because it is still a little too early for them. But I wanted to get a jump on on this because if you are having some green onions coming up and would like something fantastic to do with it that is more interesting than cutting it on the bias and sprinkling it on top of a dish, this is something that will definitely work. I have quite a pile. These are scallion pancakes, so they really should have a lot of scallions. And I cut the tips fairly far back and usually at least a couple of inches off the top. And the reason is that I just, I find that they get tough towards the tip. I don't like the leatheriness that can frequently, they're either, they're one of two things toward the tip. One is that they're sort of, sort of dry and leathery and have an unappealing texture. The other is that they're limp and dry and uh, wilted. So there's, there's the sort of two flaws of the tip of the green onion. They still have really good flavor, you know, you can use them in stock and stuff, but I personally, I learned from a very young age to get rid of the tips towards the end, and I still do it. Some people keep the whole thing, you know, or they might, they might cut just the bare, bare tip off, but I do some pretty heavy surgery on my, on green onions. I like to, I like to cut a lot of that tip off. It's always distracting when you're eating something, especially when it's you know, as most of our green onions tend to be kind of garnishy. And all of a sudden you're sort of like chewing on this piece of green onion and you're several minutes later, you're kind of still chewing on the same piece of green onion. And you're like, yeah, maybe I'll cut the tip off next time. Uh, this is, this is kind of a funny little tip is that I, I read, you know, quite a, quite a few uh, recipes from various sources while I was prepping for this show uh, for scallion pancakes. And one of the things that I noticed is that in pretty much all of the recipes that were obviously from either a Chinese person or somebody who had really extensive experience cooking Chinese food, they almost all made a point of saying, don't use the whiter parts close to the bottom of the onion for this dish. And most of the sort of, you know, more generic American and European type uh, recipes, sources for these, even though they were mostly the same in other respects. I mean, they all made them the, the same basic way. Most of them didn't mention necessarily specifically anything about only using the parts towards the tip and getting rid of the white parts. And in this case, this is something that, uh, the first few times that I made scallion pancakes, I didn't really think of it either way. The thing about the, the base towards the bottom is that there are a lot of layers down there. And as a result, the slices that you get from down there tend to be a lot stiffer. You know, you typically don't take the time to separate out all those layers. And even when you do, there tends the, the layers in the core tend to be fairly stiff. They tend to be a little bit sturdier as opposed to as you get towards the outside, there might only be two or three layers and they tend to be a little softer. And you might think, well, what does this matter? And it matters because as I discovered when I was first making them, the, <laughs> the, the parts toward the bottom, the white parts are stiff and fairly sharp. They tear the dough a lot worse than the, the greener, softer parts toward the top. When you make these, when you roll these out, you're guaranteed to have quite a bit of rips in the dough. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. You, you can't really do anything about that, but you don't want it to be too extensive. And the dough is a lot harder to roll out if it contains a lot of the, the base of the onions. So now I'm going to reserve this big pile of white to very pale green onion bases. And we're gonna do something else with that. I'm gonna make a different dish with that part of the onion. And that will come a little bit later. Get them out of my workspace so they are not contaminating it. So now I got a big pile of scallion tops and I am just going to cut them very, very thin on the bias. On the bias is kind of the standard way that everybody cuts scallions. I, if I'm using them for garnish, I will very often cross cut them so that I get circles and I cut them pretty, pretty thin. 
You want to cut them thin regardless of what you're doing with them. Almost the thinner the better. But I very often, if I'm using them for garnish, which green onions and parsley are the garnish of South Louisiana cooking. Cut a lot of green onions in my day. And I actually like the texture and the way that the flavor gets released a little bit better for garnish purposes if they're cross-cut like that into circles because they're smaller. When you get a big bird's, uh, what do they call them? Bird's ear, I think, in uh, Chinese cooking books. That's the, that's the specific style of cutting on the bias. So that they're diagonal. I think it's called bird's ears. Uh, I'm in the middle of cooking or I would go look it up. Anyway, I think that's what it's called. I can't remember for sure. It's a much more noticeable cut. Like when you, when you bite one, they're much larger. They have a lot more surface area. So you get a big onion boom. For garnish purposes, I actually typically prefer them to be a little more subtle and a little more dialed back and a little more in the background. I feel like they, I get a better result. I get a result that I want more if I cut them across. But I have been accused of being strange. Anyway, so I'm cutting these on the bias. And one thing that is immediately noticeable as soon as you have it pointed out to you is that this is much softer than a pile of sliced green onions that contains extensive white. It's soft, you know, it's much more of like an herb. There's no stiffness. You reach into it, everything yields. It is what you want. Definitely not something I was hip to when I first made these, and it was a while before I really learned that you should mostly be ditching the white. So we're left with a pile of whites from my green onions. Got to do something with them. Can't just throw them away, and I could just slice them throw them on top of something and it'd be very delicious. But I also happen to have something else that needs to be used up. About once a week or so, I generally in the winter will roast and in the summer will grill a chicken. There are many things I love about grilled slash roasted chicken and leftovers is definitely one of them. I am constantly trying to find new things to do with chicken salad so that I don't get bored eating the same old chicken salad week after week after week. So pretty much all of my chicken salads are different. This one will be no different from all the others that are different. I don't know exactly what I'm gonna end up here with. I am starting from a point where I have an idea of where to start and I know approximately how I wanna end up, but I don't know exactly how I'm gonna get there. Here's what I know at this point. Given the things that I have available to me, I am gonna make a chicken salad with a burnt green onion and tamarind sauce. If you've ever had tamarind, it is mouth puckering. It is incredibly sour. Uh, it's quite delicious, but it's very, 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 very sour. And what I have here is uh, some tamarind chutney that I made for my birthday party, which was a uh, an Indian food potluck. In case you've never had tamarind identified as tamarind, if you've ever had an English brown sauce, like HP sauce or daddy's, which are kind of similar in flavor profile to A1 in the US, although I don't know for sure. I know that A1 is based on English brown sauces, but I don't know for sure that it actually contains tamarind. But English brown sauces do have some tamarind, and if you've ever had one and you taste something like a tamarind chutney, you'll go, oh, that rings a huge bell. The tamarind in the tamarind chutney is much more intense than it is in a, in a brown sauce, but it's definitely like, it's there. It's, it's, if you've ever had fish and chips, particularly in Scotland, where they use a lot of brown sauce instead of vinegar, you'll go, oh, <laughs> that's what that is the first time you taste tamarind. So I've just shredded my chicken. This happens to be a grilled chicken that I did just a couple days ago. So the first thing we're going to do is get the ingredients for the salad part of the, the chicken salad together, and then we'll make the dressing. What I do have today is a pickle. This is a dill pickle from last summer that I made. And the pickle itself is, you know, it'll be, it'll be sour as well. I mean, it's been it fermented for quite a while and it's quite sour too. But it also brings a lot of, there's a lot of herbs and, and there's some garlic that I 
had in the jar. So it brings a lot of a very vibrant sort of fresh flavor that since I don't have a ton of other fresh vegetables type things going in here, I do have some parsley just to give it another slightly fresh edge. I don't need any onions because I've got big pile of green onions that are about to get used, but they are not merely going to get sliced up and thrown in here. We're going to do something much more interesting. So let's carry on here. Let's make our dressing. At this point, we're just going to call it a burnt green onion and tamarind dressing. Or should we call it a tamarind and burnt green onion dressing? Actually, I think that sounds better. On a restaurant menu, I think tamarind burnt green onion sounds better. It doesn't lead with burnt. And it's gonna have other stuff, we just don't quite know what it is yet. I got some ideas. I know there's a couple things that are definitely gonna go in here. So we're gonna start out here. I'm gonna get a pan hot. And this pan is a cast iron pan, enameled cast iron specifically. And we'll talk a little bit about that now. So what we're doing here is I'm doing burnt green onions. I was first introduced to these at a restaurant that I worked at where we made a, a sauce with burnt onions, just regular onions. I'd never had it before, and it really was, was something very different that I thought when I first heard about it, I was like, that's nuts, that's never that, that's going to taste terrible, but it actually works really well. And the reason it works is that when you burn something, when you take the sugars in a particular anything, any kind of sugar, and you burn it, you take it too far. You take it past the point of where it's definitively caramelized, and you take it into where the bitter flavors are really, really starting to predominate and where it's starting to get black and definitely burned, it gives you this very sort of intense, very distinctive bitter flavor. But the rest of the onion is not burned. We're not like setting fire to the onions and getting, you know, a pile of charred ash. And, and the way that we did it uh, at, at the restaurant where I learned how to do it, the way that we did it was we halved the onions and we cooked them directly on a dry pan until, they, until the, the cut half burned. But we actually didn't we didn't do we didn't do anything to the rest of the onion. So essentially, in the time that it took for the onions to burn on the cut end, the residual heat cooked the rest of the onions a little bit, not a whole lot, but just enough to start to generate like that sweated onion sort of sweetness starting to come out. Except the very top of the onion was still pretty raw. So you actually get three different layers of onion flavor. One is the, well, two are the very familiar ones, the raw onion with kind of a sharp bite. And that was not a lot. There was a little bit of that kind of at the top. And then the bulk of the flavor was the worldwide beloved sweated onion flavor. And then all the way at the very, very bottom, you got, and this was a very small percentage of the overall flavor, you got that charred sort of bitter really intense flavor and then what we did is we took all those we took the onions after we'd done this and we threw them into a food processor and we just blended them and so what you wound up with was this intense onion pulp that had a really deep sweated onion slightly sweet slightly pungent onion flavor that really was the dominant flavor but it was underpinned by this kind of charred edge and it made it really, really interesting. And then what we did with it is uh, added cream to it and essentially made a sauce soubise, which we've talked about on the show before, which is an onion sauce that uses a ton of onions that are sweated but not caramelized. And then they're pureed. And that is basically the whole sauce. And I cannot for the life of me remember what it went on. <laughs> that wasn't my station. I was, I made the, I, t I usually would burn the onions, but I didn't do the actual finished dish. So I can't remember at this point what it went on because I didn't make it 12,000 times. So I'm not doing anything to these green onions. These are just the whites that are left over from chopping the green parts off for the scallion pancakes. So they're pale green to white. I thought about slicing them in half, but one of the things that, one of the reasons this works really well is because you get a good ratio of the burned part to the onion part. And I don't wanna, if I thought if I cut them, then I would have too much burned part. And it would also become kind of a pain because I would have to place them all cut side down. Whereas this, this way, what I'm gonna do, so now I've got my pan, it's hot and it's smoking. And one thing I do wanna caution is it's a much better idea to use a pan that's not going to have a reactive surface. So don't use unenameled cast iron and don't use carbon steel 
because those you can get instead of the nice caramelized burn you can get something that's much more carbonized and it's like if you've ever eaten like if you've ever accidentally ingested like the burn stuff on a grill um, on a really poorly cl cleaned grill and you get that really metallic kind of nasty uh, flavor that is not what we're after maybe a little hint of that but from experience it's pretty easy to get a lot of that if you use something like carbon steel or cast iron so use or unenameled cast iron so you need something non-reactive uh you know at least with something that doesn't have a seasoning like that so aluminum's fine that's what we use at the restaurant uh stainless steel uh enameled cast iron is great anything that doesn't have a, a coating that could burn so don't use a uh, non-stick either you'll destroy your pan because we're going to get it hot like it's real hot i just put in all my green onions and i'm just i'm not going to roll them i'm not going to rotate them all i want is for one side i just need to make sure they're in one layer and I, all i want is for one side of them to get really really dark and nice and burned so we are basically there i've got a nice amount of extremely dark brown shading into black going on here and i'll pull these out and so all of the onions have softened up a little bit which is good because that implies to me that they're going to now have a little bit more of that kind of sweet characteristic that we're looking for okay so i've just put my onions into my mason jar because i know some of y'all well, if you're in a restaurant, you most likely have a decent quality blender. And if you're sufficiently bougie, you probably have one too. But I don't have a decent quality stand blender. All I have is a stick blender. So I put it at the bottom of them, put all my onions at the bottom of a mason jar and start to pulverize them. Then they're turning into a nice puree. In this case, since it's, since this is a salad that's kind of chunky to begin with, I'm not going to, I'm already, I've already just decided I'm not going to strain, I'm not going to strain my sauce. So I'm okay if it's, if it's a little thick as well, because I'm not looking for some, you know, silky smooth thing. All right. I just added about a tablespoon of that tamarind chutney. Give it a taste, see where we're at before I start adding anything else. Well, that's lovely. I think I could use a little more tamarind to sort of take the edge. Right now, it's still a little bit vegetal. Tamarind's out, out in front more. Still a little bit too vegetal right at the front, but I think it goes away pretty rapidly once the tamarind starts to roll in. So I'm gonna take another tack in a different way. I'm gonna add a little bit of cayenne. That is maybe maybe an eighth of a teaspoon of cayenne, just a couple little pinches. Okay, that brought it into a focus a little better. The cayenne, the cayenne now just kind of lingers at the very end, before the the sourness of the tamarind was a little too predominant at the very very end of the uh, of the bite, and and now the the little slight bit of heat from the cayenne kind of nullifies some of that sourness. So you're left with a, a much cleaner palate at the end. I'm gonna add a little bit of salt and I'm wondering about ginger, but I'm not, God, I don't know, I'm not really feeling ginger. Let's try a little white pepper. Mmm, ooh, oh, that's, yeah, okay. So we definitely lost a lot of the more vegetal flavors with the addition of the salt and the white pepper. Now the white pepper is kind of bouncing around the tip of my, of my, palate and still at the very end at the end of the bite we get that uh, we get a slight heat from the from the uh, cayenne pepper and now in the whole middle part of the bite now is a pretty complex like it's definitely oniony but it's oniony with a bit of an edge to it and i think i think i want a little bit of some sort of oil the nice thing about oil is it oil for one it, it coats the palate and it also coats the food when we add it to the salad so it helps the flavors to sort of spread out and adhere a little better as opposed to if you don't add any oil at all to a sauce like this it can be sort of hard for the for the oil to to completely 
enrobe the food, which is what we wanted to do. Now I got a choice here. I could use canola, which is very neutral. I could use olive oil or I could use sesame oil. I don't think I want to use sesame oil. I think that would bring it into a way too specific taste. Oh man, it's kind of a tough choice actually. So I think in this case, I'm going to use regular canola oil because I want a neutral flavor. I don't want, the sesame oil is way too specific. I think their olive oil might work, but it would also bring a fruitiness that I don't really want. So I'm gonna use just some plain old canola oil. So that wasn't very much. That, was, that wasn't even a one-to-one -one with the rest of the ingredients. And now I've got a much thicker sauce. It's, it's nicely emulsified. Uh, onions, onions like garlic are, are a good emulsifier. Mmm, yeah. Now, smoothing that out really brought like the fruitier aspects of the tamarind right to the forefront. And now it's like I get a shot of the, the fruitiness, then I get this deep sort of onion flavor. The sourness is now mitigated to just sort of keeping things very interesting. And I think now I actually, I've lost a little bit of the heat, so I'm gonna add another shot of cayenne because fat tends to kind of mitigate heat a little bit. So I don't want to lose it entirely. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. The addition of that last bit of cayenne, it seems to have sort of melded a little with, the, with that burned intensity, and it really sort of perked that side of things up. Before, the burnt onion part of the garlic was not, or of the uh, green onions was not very prominent, and now it's definitely, it's definitely there. So, whew. I almost wonder, I think it might be a little thick still, so I might add a little bit of oil just to thin it out and dial it back some. So that was maybe, maybe another two tablespoons of oil. It's thinner than it was for sure. It's a little more dressing-like. It's kind of like a very thick mayonnaise. Mm, oh, it's, oh yeah, that I like, that I do like. Is there anything else? It's very straightforward. It's very, it's very direct now, you know, like, before, there were all the different flavors, but they weren't quite pulling in the same direction. They weren't quite in harmony, and now they're much, much closer to that. They're, they're building on each other. I think what it needs, as is often the case in situations like this, I think what it needs is just another little pinch of salt. I've talked about salt before as being like the focus in uh, photography. Shift the focus around from different flavors and where you add the salt also affects how you perceive the flavors. So, mmm, yep, 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 yep. That brought the onions right back up to where they needed to be. Before, I was getting a little too, I was, it was a little, it was a little saggy in the middle. I got a really nice, fruity, intense, slightly sour tamarind shot right at the beginning, and then I got a nice sort of peppery heat right at the end but the middle was a little bit sloppy. And now that extra little bit of salt just helped to sort of perk up the onion flavor. And now I've got a sauce that I like. And I'm gonna add it to my chicken and such. I really, <laughs> one of my pet peeves is overdressed chicken salads, you know, where you're just gloopy amounts of dressing. I like very light amounts of dressing. I like very light amounts of dressing on basically all of my salads. I think this is something that I've, I've, I've come around on. When I was a kid, I basically thought that the point of a salad was to eat large amounts of dressing, particularly blue cheese dressing. So if it wasn't swimming in blue cheese dressing, I was basically not interested. As I've gotten older, uh, I have realized that I vastly prefer salads that are relatively lightly dressed. You know, you want, you still want, like, this is still a chicken salad. It shouldn't taste like the dressing with a little bit of chicken. It should taste like the chicken, well supported by the dressing. That's the goal. Overdressing salads, I think, is a really, is a really common culinary sin. And everybody always thinks they like it more because they're like, oh, lettuce is boring. Or, you know, salads are boring. It's the dressing that makes it exciting. Just try it for a couple of weeks. When you're making a salad, if you think you might be guilty of overdressing salads, take a couple of weeks and deliberately dial back the amount of dressing that you add. 
And then after a couple of weeks, reevaluate. Go back and make a salad with the amount of dressing that you used before. And if you still like it, hey, great, knock yourself out. But you might find, as I did, that, oh, yeah, I think you should actually use a little more dressing. <laughs> you can always add dressing. You, you can't always, uh, mm, that's good. Getting a little too much parsley off the, off the top, so that's why I'm adding a little bit more dressing. And I also didn't salt my salad specifically. My, so I'm going to add a little more salt to the salad. The big thing with dressing, it just needs to coat everything. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, when it sits down with all the other ingredients, you still get a little of the peppery hit at the end. You still get that poke of sourness right at the beginning. But then the main part of the bite, there's so many different flavors going on. There's, you know, the slight smokiness from the chicken that's complementing the charred nature of the, the burned onions. And then the sweetness uh, and the very, very slight pungency of the green onion is really sitting nicely with the with the chicken and with that that dill pickle. The dill pickle is not you get actually more dill than pickle, I think. I think the the sourness kind of gets subsumed by the by the tamarind. Like they unite together. They're two very different sournesses, but they really work together. That is a quality chicken salad. Kind of impressed with this. All right, so that is the white part of the the onion and chicken salad with a tamarind burnt onion dressing. And my dough has been resting for a little while, which means we can roll it out and make our pancakes. Laminate our dough. So I'm gonna get four pancakes out of this this amount of dough it looks like so i'm just gotta i got a half sheet size parchment paper here and i'm just going to cut it into four vaguely rectangular objects and that that'll go between the layers so they don't stick to each other bowl of scallions at the ready cut my dough into four equal size chunks and roll them into balls so now i have four small balls take my first one flatten it out into a disc grab my rolling pin roll into a circle now here is where i'm going to use a little trick from the great kenji lopez alt who pointed out that you could get your scallion pancakes even flakier if you did what we're about to do a couple of times, most the traditional recipes, most of them call for one turn of the dough. He posited that if you did it twice, you could get even more flaky layers. So we are going to do that because you do get lots of flaky layers. All right, so I've rolled it out into a circle. Now I have a pastry brush and some sesame oil. Drizzle a bit of sesame oil onto my pancake generous you don't want you know too much but you need to evenly cover everything because the idea here is that the paste the sesame oil is now going to be a layer separating the surrounding layers of my paste so we want it to be complete and now you roll this up just like a jelly roll and this is the the biggest difference uh in how this is made between this style of laminated dough and something like a croissant. With a croissant, you, f you encase the solid fat inside an envelope, roll it out, and then turn it repeatedly over a period of several hours. With this, we roll it up into a tube that is exactly like a jelly roll, and now we coil it up, starting at one end. We just coil the whole thing flatten it down a bit, and now I'm going to roll it out again. So this is his sort of Kenji's big innovation, is that the traditional ones just add the scallions immediately, and his version gives it a second roll, which, get, which generates a, little, a few more layers of flakes that otherwise would not exist. So it's just a little flakier than doing this once. But you certainly could just do it once. And millions and millions and millions of happy scallion pancake eaters every day eat scallion pancakes with one turn but we're giving it two 
roll it out again into a circle. And this time, I am going to again drizzle it with a little bit. <laughs> That's so. This one particular scallion pancake will be a little bit interesting in flavor because the bottle of Angostura bitters that I had uh, on the counter very nearby, which looks a little bit like sesame oil, I grabbed that and uh, that's what I, but anyway, I took some of it off. But anyway, so this, this particular scallion pancake will also have a little bit of flavor of Angostura bitters, uh, which, hey, it might be brilliant. Maybe I've come up with, accidentally come up with a brilliant new flavor idea. Angostura bitter scallion pancakes. It's very fusion. I feel like I could charge 18 or 20 bucks for a plate of these. And so I have now put on a second layer of my sesame oil. Again, generous. Again, brushing it all the way to the edges. And this time, I am adding my chopped scallion tops to to the top of my rolled out dough and you want to be generous these are scallion pancakes these are not pancakes with scallions so be very generous have a lot of them and expect that at this point i'm going to roll it up again and in this case the roll you got to be a little bit careful because the scallions will start to spill out everywhere but again just like a jelly roll Keeping those scallions tucked inside the rolls. All right, nice flakes. You can see the flakes. You can see the different layers. And now again, roll it up, coil it up. And at this point, we're gonna roll it out one more time and you can expect some tears. That's just how it is. You're gonna have some tears. This. The, shall the scallions are going to poke out. It's going to look a little weird. But don't worry. It's going to taste delicious. And we want to get it as thin as we can get it. But there's a limit to how thin you can get it. Because of the presence of all of the scallions. This is not as thin as a dumpling wrapper. That's pretty good. I'm satisfied with that. Probably get thrown out of any half-decent street food stall in Chengdu, but but what do I know? I'm just a guy with a big stack of scallions. Okay, there's one. And now I'm going to repeat the process. Take my ball, flatten it out into a disc, roll it out. One day we'll have to do a show on rolling pins. They're so personal. Everybody has their own favorite. I'm a tapered pin guy. Some people like the single solid dowel-like. Some people like the ones with handles. I hate the ones with handles, personally. I never could get the hang of using them. My knuckles were always banging on the countertop. You know, the one thing I really don't like about them is that the nice thing about the, and one of the reasons I like the, the tapered pin so much, they're, they're really light. And I can generally like, I just put my hand directly over the top of the thing that I'm rolling. So all the pressure is generated exactly where I want it to be. If I wanna, you know, correct the edge or something, I can just keep doing little small rolls out there exactly where, you know, the, I want it to be. It just feels much more natural to me than, <laughs> you know, than like the bulldozer, like steamrolling that I always feel like I'm doing with the, with the handle pins. You know, where you just got and shove this giant thing around. Plus the, the, I have a really small kitchen with very little counter space and the, the tapered pins are so, so maneuverable that it's easier to work with in the very restricted area. You know, I'm just going to move these Angostura bitters away, put some sesame oil on my pancake number two, brush it out, jelly roll it up. Now pinch the ends. Coil it, tamp it down, roll it out again. Now I will say that I think it's a little easier to make these if you just do one roll. The second roll, because of the oil, it has a tendency to kind of want to come apart a little bit. So you got to be a little bit careful and a little methodical as you're doing it. Otherwise, it's kind of easy to have the layers start to separate while you're rolling them out. 
or while you're rolling it out the second time, you can get like really thin patches where the, the dough is kind of showing through, which isn't the end of the world, but is also something you don't precisely want. So you, you just want to be a little bit careful. Sesame oil, pastry brush, all the way to the end, and scallions. Generous, generous scallions. Jelly roll again, and the coil. Smash it down one more time, and roll it out. Again, being a little careful, because it will sort of want to, especially when you first start, the outside edge will very often want to kind of separate out, so you kind of have to keep it attached until you get, a, get it rolled down a little bit and it starts to properly attach itself to the other layers. And one thing I, I will say about this, having, having made a bunch of them, and some of them were not the most attractive things coming out when I'd finished rolling them out, I will tell you that it makes no difference once they go into the pan because they will come out of the pan beautifully golden, beautifully crispy, beautifully delicious. No one will care if you had to stick them back together in various barbarian ways. All right, it's two done. Let's make number three. Same deal. This is a good laminated dough to get your laminated dough feet wet in because it's pretty simple to make and it's not time consuming like making croissants is. Making croissants takes forever and it's a big pain because you have to spend a lot of time making sure that the butter is at the correct temperature. If it's too hard, it won't roll and it'll tear the, it'll tear the layers. If it's too soft, it melts and then it just separates out into water and the pastry becomes greasy and heavy and disgusting. Both of those are problems. This, pretty much no fail. And it doesn't have that level of sort of perfection that croissants kind of demand because they are so labor intensive, you know, and, and because they are such a standard of pastry. They're like the pinnacle, really. If you can make a good croissant, you know that you're dealing with a very good baker. These are considerably more forgiving, which is the kind of thing we like on this show. This show is all about forgiving in food. Perfection is not the goal most of the time. Sometimes it is, as long as it's not the enemy of the good. All right, there is a number three. Developed a little bit of a gap in the middle, but we can stick it back together and good as new. And the little gaps that you will periodically get, that's just from the, the layer of oil keeping the two sides of paste from sticking together. But if you massage them down a little bit, give them a little gentle coaxing, they'll get together. Okay, we're on number four. Roll them into a disc. Drizzle of sesame. Brush, 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 brush. And roll, jelly roll. Coil it up. Massage the edges together. Roll it. Roll it. Last little drizzle of oil. Last little sprinkle of scallions. Roll it up. Pinch the layers together as best as you can. And flatten it out. And generally start to roll. Alright. Now that didn't take too long. Cuts time in half if you only rolled them once, which is probably why, since this is street food, the traditional recipes are all for one, because if you're trying to turn these things out in bulk, you're gonna waste a bunch of time making two separate turns. But since we're doing this at home, we don't care about efficiency. All right, well, let's cook them. Why not? We might as well. So you can, if you so desire, you can deep fry these, uh, but I'm just gonna pan fry them. But if you got the deep fryer going, knock yourself out. Hot pan, cold oil, always the rule. And I'm just going to use a neutral, really basic vegetable oil here. You can use canola or whatever you have around, really. Don't use sesame oil, just remind you. Sesame oil is only for drizzling, not for cooking with. Alright, a little shot. 
Throw some oil to cover the bottom. Let that heat up. Starting to shimmer nicely. Not a lot to say about the pan frying process. Mm. As they cook, they really start to give off this beautiful aroma of scallions. Essence of scallions. Flipped the first one. They have such a nice, such a beautiful, like, crunchy exterior. And then the contrast between that and the sort of soft, flaky layers on the inside. It isn't the dramatic puff uh, of, a, of, of a croissant, of a really good croissant. But it is, it's a very own unique textural pleasure. Because it's chewy, you know? It's chewy in a way that, that a croissant obviously is not. You know, a really good croissant just kind of explodes like confetti in your mouth. These guys, you got to work at them a little bit. But it's, it's very pleasant work. And you can serve them with, essentially, any sort of dipping sauce you would like. Anything soy-based, something hoisin-based would be lovely. Chili oil, if that's your bag. Or just eat them on, alone. They certainly do not require a dipping sauce, in my estimation. Beauty, very excited. When the scallions start to come in, there's nothing better. There's equal things, but there's nothing better that you can do with them. Mm, look at that. That is gorgeous. Yep, flaky layers. Mmm, so good. So simple. What? Four ingredients? Water, flour, sesame oil, and scallions. That's it. That's all there is to it. It's as good a snack, or a party food, or a first course, as you can find anywhere. And it makes the scallion the star. And they should be. They're not just a garnish. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kotawar Ebane. This is the first episode of the first summer 2021 season of Check the Pantry. Support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club, which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who's worked at Michelin Star Restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. Additional support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the Southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you.